That long march through winter continues, and to help cope with the dreary, we bring you episode 140 of The Far Middle. A little light and a little spark for late January. Nick Deolius here, your host, and lifelong Pittsburgher, proud Appalachian, domestic energy fan, and novice policy geek. So let's kick off 140 with our sports dedication. We're going to dedicate this episode to an entire sport, the sport of hockey. I love history and I adore sport. You put those two together and you get sports history, which is one of the most awesome things since Eddie Van Halen combined the guitar and the keyboards. Yeah, let's combine history and sport to celebrate and explore in this dedication the origins of the game of hockey. I mean, we all know it originated in Canada, right? Well, probably wrong, at least to a certain extent. So allow the far middle to once again fulfill its mission to educate and illuminate and illustrate. Hockey and its precursor games that impacted it, they've been around a long time. Ancient carvings show the Greeks playing a game very similar to hockey, just not on the ice, as early as 500 BC. And in the 1600s, a game known as Colvin was played on ice in Holland, and it resembled hockey quite a bit. To be blunt, the fact is we don't know where the game originated from. So how about that? Heck, we don't even know how the name of the sport came about. Some say the name came from the Iroquois Indians in the St. Lawrence River Valley because French explorers, they saw the Indians playing a game with sticks and a ball, not on the ice, and some of the players would yell hoogie or hoogie when a stick inadvertently hit a player in the leg instead of the ball. And hoogie or hoogie translates to it hurts. Sort of sounds like hockey. Hmm, but maybe not. Okay, how about this explanation for the source of the name hockey? The French word for a shepherd's bent stick, which resembles a hockey stick, is hockey. And that sounds more maybe likely to me. And then the sport's early remnants were not in Canada. They were in England in the 1860s, where the game was played on the frozen ice of a pond. So check out this description that I dug up from a London newspaper in 1862. Hockey ought to be sternly forbidden, as it is not only annoying, but dangerous. In its right place, hockey is a noble game and deserving of every encouragement. But on the ice, it is in the wrong place and should be prohibited. Wow. Now remember, field hockey was being played in England at the time. So hockey was in some ways a simple adaptation, one additional step, A field hockey just played on ice for winter fun and games during the winter when not much else was there to do. Makes sense, I suppose. And then there are those who say that the game of hockey evolved from lacrosse in North America, or to some degree by a game known as shinny that was played in the northeastern United States in the late 1800s. So check out this description of shinny and hockey, and this comes from Outing Magazine in 1913. And it was an article by Walter Pritchard Easton, who described the game Shinny when he was a kid, which would have been, I guess, in the latter half of the 1800s. This is from um, Alting Magazine. I can hear the roar of the runners yet and see the white powder fly as the leader doubled and the whole pack ground their skate blades into the ice and reversed in pursuit. I can still feel the sting of the cold December evening on my hot cheeks as I went for my coat when the game was over and see the solemn green sunset up the pond to the west. The boys are at it yet, 
though they all have store sticks now and call the game hockey. Again, a great description from Outing Magazine. But, you know, certainly Canada took the pieces of these early games and refined them to make hockey as we know it today. The base concepts may not be Canadian in origin, and the base equipment, sticks, a ball or puck, skates, they may have not originated in Canada, but putting them all together to turn and form a refined and entertaining game that we recognize today as hockey, that was definitely Canadian, as Canadian as the rock group Rush. And that's what you do, I guess, when you're dealt long, deep winter weather. You improvise to create a game that are made for those conditions. So here's to the game of hockey and those who may have named it and to those who may have created it and most definitely to the Canada that refined it into the modern game of today. Let's jump to a connection that we will spend the bulk of this episode's time on. I cut a trilogy of videos a few weeks ago after the COP28 meetings wrapped in the Middle East. And that's a confab where something like, what, over 70,000 elites attended. Uh, they traveled to and from it to come up with a statement after weeks of talk. And the statement basically says nothing, you know, word salad. But the trilogy of videos can be viewed on nickdeolius.com if you wish, and also on YouTube, on my channel, if you search Nick Deolius, and that's N-I-C-K, and then D is in David, E-I-U-L-I-I-S. So if you search that on YouTube, you'll find the channel, and then you can subscribe if you're so inclined, and you'll see those three video installments. And I encourage you to view them if you get a chance, and many have, and the feedback so far has been awesome. So thank you for that if you did provide feedback after viewing the videos. And for this episode of The Far Middle, I wanted to focus more on the points made in the first video of that uh, that series. And we can hit the second and third videos in upcoming Far Middle episodes. And by the way, what was our connection um, to this from our hockey dedication? Didn't want you constant listeners to think that we were getting lazy with our connections because there is a great connection between the two. Hockey played, of course, on ice and outdoors during winter. So the NHL did what most pro sports leagues do these days. It pandered to the left and radical environmentalists, even though running the NHL carries an enormous carbon footprint. If you go back and review some of the more recent NHL sustainability reports, and yes, the NHL does publish sustainability reports, believe it or not, you will find the same old PR wordsmithing used across business these days that hockey has to adapt to warming global temperatures or the sport could be threatened by climate change, that the NHL seeks ideas to make the sport more adaptable to the changing climate because hockey needs ice and global temperatures are rising. And the NHL is doing everything it can to focus on sustainable measures and reduce its carbon footprint. Now, here's an interesting quote from the NHL on this matter. Quote, hockey was born on frozen ponds. Climate change is impacting access to our sport outdoors, end quote. Yeah, truly an existential threat to hockey. Okay, with that connection established in the far middle record, let's discuss our main topic of climate change. COP28, which by the way, COP stands for Conference of Parties, it wrapped in December of last year. It's hard to believe there's been 28 of these things already, but there have been. And all of the theatrics and all the posturing that you typically see with climate change theater, those things were on full display during COP28. But now that it's concluded, how would a rational thinker navigate through where we sit today when it comes to both climate change 
and then the policies that are tied uh, to the issue of climate change or justified off of climate change. I know it's a bold move daring to apply rational thought to climate change and climate change policies these days, right in line with the approach of the far middle, wouldn't you say? But isn't it a great question, a pair of questions, because it's massively timely and the issues, they're incredibly huge. That's why we prepared the trilogy of videos. And that's why we're discussing the first one today on episode 140 of The Far Middle. Now, let's begin by diagnosing the problem and the issue. And diagnosis is actually a perfect term for what we should be doing, because when you think of the term, the word diagnosis, it makes you think of data and math, science, um, logical thinking. And unfortunately, uh, those things have been jettisoned and they've been let go. And they've been abandoned when assessing what is the most important issue facing our time. The most important issue, by the way, facing our time, at least from my perspective, isn't necessarily climate change itself, but instead the poor policies, the inept policies that are being pushed upon society by the climate alarmist movement. Yeah, that's the most pressing issue of our time. Climate policies, not climate change. Actually, this brings to mind the definition that I read once of a religious writer, and it was about the author of Pilgrim's Progress, who was John Bunyan. That book, by the way, is regarded as one of the most significant works of theological fiction in English literature, and it's been translated into more than 200 languages, and it's never been out of print. We'll have a little bit more on Pilgrim's Progress later in this episode, so stay tuned. But back to what someone wrote about that author, John Bunyan, that he was a professional preacher whose business was his words. And indeed, what we're seeing today when it comes to climate change policies are preachers, preachers of a religion, and that's an increasingly intolerant religion, who are replacing math, data, science, economics, and so on. And what are they replacing those things with? Well, in their places, those preachers of this religion are putting in, or jamming in might be a better term, creative writing, phraseology, etc., to create a visual, an optic of what might be proposed to be happening. And what are the phrases that we hear? Well, you know them now as well as I do. It's things like code red, code red with an exclamation point at the end of it, of course, um, tipping point, existential threat. We already used that when we heard it from uh, the NHL. Our United Nations Secretary General, he's very creative in this arena, coming up with terms like the highway to climate hell. And I think he referenced a boiling or a broiling planet uh, with his, his words, quite creative. And when you assess what's going on with respect to evaluating the policies supposedly set forth to deal with climate change, we need to get back, to use the words of Paul McCartney, get back to the rational thoughts as to what we know, what the math tells us, what science is telling us. So get back, Jojo. So how does one rationally navigate through the complicated and sometimes emotional topic of climate change? Well, from the perspective of climate change itself, hey, it's happening. It's been happening for millions of years. It's an accepted fact, and it'll be happening as long as there is a planet Earth. The second thing we know with respect to climate change occurring and always occurring is that during prior periods of history, and well before the start of the Industrial Revolution, when human beings, they finally figured out how to harness that magical power of the carbon atom, the swings that 
we're seeing in climate and the extent of climate change, they had been much more severe than what we've seen the past couple hundred of years since the advent of the Industrial Revolution. And I'll provide you constant listeners with three quick examples, but great illustrations of that very thing. So let's get in the time travel machine and let's go back to around 5,000 years ago. And let's head down to South Florida. Up until then, the Florida Keys, they were completely underwater for substantial periods of time because of sea levels during those periods. The Keys were effectively undersea coral reefs. They weren't islands, meaning rising sea levels, they're nothing new. You go back to just before and just after the time of Christ in the Mediterranean region. Sea levels were significantly higher than they are today, and temperatures were significantly higher than what we see today. But yet that thing we call the Roman Empire, it found a way to flourish in spite of those challenges. Looking at this clinically, one would posit the global warming created more conducive conditions for the Roman Empire to thrive along with all the advancements that the empire brought with it. Climate change and global warming back then, it wasn't code red, it was code great. And then at about 1000 AD, there were Vikings in Greenland doing what? What was Leif Erikson doing when he wasn't exploring for new lands? He and they, the Vikings, were farming in Greenland. You don't farm in Greenland today because of climate, too cold. The other accepted and settled fact with climate change is that atmospheric carbon dioxide levels, yeah, they've indeed increased since the start of the Industrial Revolution. So they've gone from give or take about 200 parts per million up to about 400 parts per million today. Now that, again, is an accepted fact or I guess parafacts. No need to dispute it or them. But what people often misunderstand or don't appreciate fully is the metric itself that of parts per million, emphasis on the per million. Now, what parts per million as a metric provides is proportion. Concentrations are relative proportions, right? So here's an easy way to understand that. Put it into the sports analogy or sports context. Imagine Penn State hosting Ohio State for a Saturday night game. So let's say it's a whiteout game where the Penn State fans are wearing white and the visiting Ohio State fans there are wearing scarlet red. Now, if you go to that college football game, and please, being a Penn State guy, don't joke about how that will be a certain Buckeyes victory, but if you attend that game, you will see 100,000 people in the stadium watching the game, just to use round numbers to make the math simple. A 200 parts per million concentration of, let's call it, visiting Ohio State fans versus home Penn State fans a 200 parts per million proportion of those 100,000 people are only 20 spectators in the stands for Ohio State in red. So clearly that crowd, or more specifically 99,980 of them, are home fans wearing PSU white, while only 20 of them are visiting fans from Columbus wearing red. That's a home crowd, a Penn State crowd. If you double that proportion to 400 parts per million, for Ohio State fans. Indeed, the number of visiting fans for Ohio State, they've doubled. It's gone up significantly from where it started, from 20 to now 40 fans. But again, it's only 40 out of 100,000 people in total. Has the nature or the atmosphere of that crowd, so to speak, changed to any observable extent? Heck no, it hasn't. The crowd's atmosphere is still overwhelmingly pro-Penn State. 
and doubling the concentration of Ohio State fans from 200 to 400 parts per million, it hasn't made an appreciable difference. That is what CO2 levels in the atmosphere have done. The atmosphere hasn't changed appreciably because of CO2 going from 200 to 400 parts per million. What else do we rationally know? Well, we know that despite the CO2 levels going up over the past couple hundred of years, climate-related deaths globally, they've plummeted. Climate-related deaths are down 95%, give or take, over the past century. Now, that's a significant improvement, despite, I might add, human beings concentrating themselves more and more near waterways and oceans, which would increase the exposure to weather-related events. So think about that, a 95% reduction in climate-related deaths the past 100 years. Meanwhile, Miami, California, the Caribbean, etc., have massively increased their population and density of development, right smack in the middle of the path of hurricanes and storms. That tells a rational person something, doesn't it? And we also know that more people die globally from extreme cold, many more than from extreme heat every year. So if you believe global warming is occurring, or you can measure the extent of it, net-net, that should be an improvement with respect to loss of life, not making things worse net-net with respect to loss of life. What else do we know? Well, we also know that there has been innovation with respect to the shale revolution, most of it in the West. So most of it in places like the United States and North America and Europe that made natural gas much more plentiful and abundant and lower cost to produce. And once that happened through the private sector, natural gas displaced enormous amounts of coal in the power generation grid, and that reduced CO2 emissions tremendously. Single biggest source of CO2 reduction over the past 30 years, in fact. And again, that wasn't from government, that wasn't from mandates, and that wasn't from regulation. And it certainly wasn't from wind and solar, please. And that was from the private sector innovating with disruptive technology to bring more natural gas to the market and across our energy grids. Pennsylvania, my home state, is an awesome example of this at work. Since 2005, because of natural gas production, largely from the Marcellus Shale and the Utica Shale, the CO2 emissions in the state of Pennsylvania have dropped over 40%. And again, that's a material and significant improvement and a very similar story, by the way, for places like Ohio, West Virginia, and Virginia. But while all that was going on, we also know, using rational thought and looking at the facts out there, that the Indias and the Chinas of the world, the developing world, so to speak, they're running to and using more coal than ever. And they're going to continue on that trajectory. And frankly, I'm not sure we can blame them because what are they after? They're after reliable and affordable energy access for their citizens. And who doesn't want that? And who has the right to deny it? And then finally, the other sort of list or group of things that we know when navigating through the facts regarding climate change, they sort of speak to what's going on with so-called renewables. And renewables, that name in and of itself, is very misleading. In many ways, it's false advertising because there's nothing renewable about wind or solar when you look at the nature of each. But what do we know about those energy charlatans that label themselves as renewable? Well, we do know that wind and solar are not zero carbon or zero carbon dioxide emitting sources of energy. They're anything but. When you take a look at the full supply chain and life cycle assessment of what it takes to produce a kilowatt hour from solar or for wind at scale, those carbon dioxide footprints, those carbon footprints, they're incredibly egregious. 
And I would put forth that they're higher than what you would find from things like natural gas fired power generation, and certainly from things like nuclear. We also know that those sources, wind and solar, they suffer from very low energy density, which means it's really difficult to scale them without the associated ecological damage. So if you think about the amount of wind turbines or the acreage of solar panels needed to pursue or achieve something like the Biden administration's net zero plan or Europe's net zero plans, you'd need to basically blanket entire states in this country or nations in Europe with either solar farms or wind farms, which of course doesn't make much sense and it's not practical. And then last but not least, you know, with wind and solar, we know, we know that there's cost issues, but we also know that there will be bringing with them, with their scaling up efforts, some serious ecological issues and negative ecological impacts. The best examples that we're seeing today are with wind generation, offshore wind, all kinds of issues arising there with regard to whale kills up and down the east coast of the United States. And then with onshore wind, when you look at what's going on with endangered species of birds and bird kills, onshore wind is the worst thing to happen to birds since the cat. Yeah, these are facts that a rational person can navigate through, what we know to be true about climate change. And it's critical in the sequencing to establish what we just discussed here first, and then build the logic off of it for subsequent steps. And we need to have a follow-on conversation, maybe in next week's episode, about what we do know about climate change policies. Because those policies, they're advertised as the medicine and the cure to climate change by the climate alarmist crowd. And we'll discuss those force cures and the prescribed medicines of the experts and the elites, and how they're much worse than the disease of climate change, whether those symptoms are real or whether they are fabricated. We close episode 140 by paying our respects to a classic work of literature that I made mention of a few minutes ago, which was John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress. And it's said by many a literary expert that there's no book in English apart from the Bible to equal Bunyan's masterpiece for the range of its readership. Bunyan has influenced many a great writer. Check out this list. C.S. Lewis, Nathaniel Hawthorne, Herman Melville, Charles Dickens, George Bernard Shaw, Mark Twain, and John Steinbeck. Love that guy, Steinbeck. And that's a pretty impressive list of uh, influenced writers. John Steinbeck's great novel, The Grapes of Wrath, it mentions The Pilgrim's Progress as one of an anonymous character's favorite books. In the Steinbeck novel itself, it was an updated version, I guess, in many ways of The Pilgrim's Progress. The Grapes of Wrath was about a sort of spiritual journey by that working man character, Tom Joad, heading through America during the Great Depression. And the book often made Christian allusions to sacrifice and redemption in a world of social injustice. Now, here's something else that's impressive about The Pilgrim's Progress. Many consider it to be the first novel written in English. The key word here is novel and how it's defined. So if a novel is defined as an extended work of narrative fiction, usually written in prose and published as a book, which is a widely accepted definition, then The Pilgrim's Progress has a legitimate claim as being the first when it was published in 1678, at least the first volume. There's uh, two volumes of the book. In Bunyan, he wrote the novel in prison. He broke a law that prohibited practicing religion outside of the officially sanctioned areas or churches. Now, that makes me think of the religion of climate alarmism and how free thought and scientific dissent 
are being outlawed more and more by the high priests of Code Red, one of which, by the way, is the current pope, and not coincidentally, the pope plays a villain role in The Pilgrim's Progress. That's why The Pilgrim's Progress serves as a great closing connection to this episode. We will be back together again before you know it, one week, seven short days. Till then, wishing you well.